God, just to build on these prayers this morning. Uh, yeah, God, for some reason you decided to push a little more uh, difficulty and hardship and suffering, God, into this family this week. And God, we claim your prayer. Um, you're near the brokenhearted and you save those who are crushed in spirit. And God, when we walk through the valley of the shadow, we can fear no evil for you are with us. And God, your power is made perfect in weakness. And God, the place that we get to know you most is in that dry and weary place, the desert. But God, in that place, you are a stream of Maim Chaim and your shade, your refuge from the storm. We just praise you, God, that in this, God, we can experience the realness of all that you are. And in that, Lord, our hope and our faith can grow. And hopefully, God, what we have to offer the world in terms of this new creation project that you started to redeem and restore all things, God, that we would have more to offer. But God, those in our body right now who are especially going through a hard season in a valley, God, I pray special, special blessing that your presence, God, would be profound in their life and that your peace that passes all understanding be real. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Good to see everybody. You guys can be seated. All right, we're in this season that we call Advent. Advent is a technical term. Uh, first of all, it was just applied and used by emperors and empires. Um, whenever the em emperor would make a visit to a city, um, that was called an advent, a coming, a coming of the king. And uh, our first brothers and sisters in Christ uh, claimed that term advent and put it uh, at this time of the year uh, to celebrate uh, the coming of our king, uh, Christmas. So, um, you know, our kids are a little bit older now, but I do remember when they were younger. And uh, I know parents uh, with especially really young children uh, have, a, have a challenge this time of year. And it's, it's what to do with Santa Claus. Uh, and again, I, there's not a right or wrong here. Um, I do remember going to a church where my pastor dressed up one Christmas morning as Santa Claus, and he had all the kids come up, and uh, they were all excited. They, they didn't walk. They ran. Uh, some are sitting on his lap, and he's doing the Santa thing, and then halfway through, he pulls off the Santa mask and said, there's no Santa. <laughs> I'm not going to do that, Okay. And there, there's so many levels to this, um, but I think it's fair to say that to some degree we've all turned Christmas into Santa Claus, or at least this G-rated thing of frills and trees and presents and uh, eggnog and, and, and lights and all those things. I mean, just even think about uh, the classic Christmas songs like, uh, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. At some point, though, that whole thing begins to crumble. 
especially in light of what some of the people this week in this family have gone through. Santa Claus just really at the end of the day is bankrupt, worthless, nothing to offer. Because at some point, we all grow out of the world of Santa Claus. Uh, this, this adult world comes crashing in, and we come of age, and we experience this death to innocence where our eyes are now opened, like Adam and Eve's were, to good and evil. William Blake, uh, the literary genius of the 18th century, brings, uh, I think, incredible light to this. Uh, He has a collection of poems called The Songs of Innocence, and then he has another collection of poems that he calls The Songs of Experience. And those two words, innocence and experience, I think mean the same thing to us today. Uh, We say things like, oh, she's so innocent, or uh, wow, that person has experienced a lot. Um, In his Songs of Innocence, uh, these poems show us a world through the lens of a child describing life in, in, in these simple, carefree terms. Then he contrasts this with another set of poems called uh, The Songs of Experience, which portray a world to the lens come of age, uh, a world that now knows good and evil. And I would say the two poems from each of these, uh, the one from The Song of Innocence uh, called The Lamb. It's simply called The Lamb. And then he has another one from The Song of Experience called The Tiger. And if you think about it, these these animals, these creatures, uh, stand in stark contrast to each other. I mean, no creature, in my opinion, on the face of the earth, captures the innocence, the purity, uh, like a lamb. And and no creature captures both the beauty, but also this fierce, carnival nature of our world, like a tiger. And see, what Blake does with these uh, two sets of poems is... He's telling us how at some point in life we exchange this lamb-like reality or existence for a tiger-like one, where innocence is lost, we come of age, where the world is no longer Santa Claus, and we know good and evil. It might be a painful experience, it might be the loss of something or someone significant, it might be the consequences of poor decisions. Or maybe you're the victim of someone else's sinful choices. And I can just say this week, even uh, some of the innocence that I've had um, was just rocked, um, where I feel like I've stepped more into the song of experience. Josh Buck, who's been coming to this church for a long time, um, who sits oftentimes in the back in a wheelchair, um, we almost lost him on Monday. And... uh, Several people like uh, Dan Pearson have been admitted to the hospital with COVID, uh, are in serious condition. Rick Siner, former chairman of the elder board at this church, a dear friend and brother, uh, passed this week uh, with COVID. Um, Bruce Cheadle, his wife Pat, they've been coming to Crossroads uh, from day one, first Sunday. And even before that, Bruce has meant a lot to our family. Um, I got the call on Tuesday. His Pat was in the hospital, dying, literally. Um, And just to be in that place. And with Bruce, uh, to see the guy just 
with faith, eyes fixed on Jesus, at peace, singing songs over his wife, Pat. Just last Sunday, my wife um, gave communion to Pat. To be in the hospital with, with, with Rick um, in, in the last hours before he passed. I mean, it was literally like being in the biblical story, uh, Jacob, with, with all his children and grandchildren gathered around him before he passed. Uh, all the family members just came in. Family by family. They have a grandkid who comes up to me almost every Sunday. You talk about a loss of innocence, saying goodbye. But I want to say something, Rick, one of the most amazing experiences ever. I can't believe, I, there's no words. The only words that I have for who that man was in those last hours leading up to his passing is there really is a peace that passes all understanding because he had it. He didn't even have a flinch of doubt or anxiety. It was amazing. I left that place thinking, I can die and it's going to be okay. Maybe this is why we like Christmas so much, or at least some of us do. <laughs> um, some of us even start Christmas in October. It's, it, it, it's, it's, this attempt to, to return somehow to this world of innocence, to, to relive the song of innocence. But as we heard from Neil Martin uh, several weeks ago, the biblical Christmas story is the furthest thing from something G-rated. The world that Jesus is born into, it's brutal, it's violent, it's oppressive, it's hurting, it's a world that is in pain. And that world is our world. Our world is becoming that world. But it's into that kind of world that God gives us this narrative, this story that speaks about how God is going to remake our world. And the only words that describe how he's going to re uh, remake it are the words new creation. Behold, says God, I'm going to make all things new. He's going to return the world to a song of innocence. And that's really the story of Christmas. That's what Christmas means. We sing it and we sing, all is calm and all is bright. And what we've been learning as we've been just kind of diving into what I would argue maybe one of the main threads of this whole narrative that God gives us, this story, because that's what the Bible is, that I think you could argue that the chief character of this whole story is a lamb. I mean, it's almost like God created a, a lamb for this specific purpose of, of assisting God in telling the story that he wants to tell. Uh, for instance, last week, uh, we, we learned of the first Passover in Exodus 12, where God instructs uh, the Israelites. He says, each man is to take... Uh, one lamb for his family. And it was to be a specific kind of lamb, we learned. It was to be a, a lamb that was one year old and without blemish. It was to be the purest of pure. And then God says, I want you to slaughter it, and I want you to collect its blood, and I want you then to paint that blood over the doorposts of your houses. And why would God ask them to do this? Well, because that next night, God's judgment 
in all its force was going to come down on Egypt and purge the entire land of evil, which would include both the Egyptians and the Hebrews. But here we see the power of one lamb for one family because as as that rider on the white horse went throughout Egypt that night, God says, when I see the blood of the lamb, I will pass over. Pass over. Hebrews, Pesach. It means to protect, means to cover. God says, I'll, I'll protect you when I see that blood. I'll cover you. And that night, it's the lamb's blood that protected each family from death. It was the lamb's flesh that they ate, that nourished each family for their journey out of slavery. It was one lamb for each family that set them free. And then we learned last week that uh, in light of this, God instructs his people. He's like, I want you to remember this forever. So every year, I want you to have this Memorial Day where you remember this event. And so for a millennia leading up to the time of Christ, families from all over the the world would travel to Jerusalem. Some would bring their lamb, but most of them would purchase a temple lamb because it was the priests who would inspect that lamb, and that lamb had to meet their standards. So most of the lambs uh, were purchased in the temple, and most of them came from a nearby town called Bethlehem, whose main industry at this time was producing lambs, for the temple sacrifice. Connect that to Christmas. In fact, the Jewish historian, Josephus, who writes at this time, tells us that for Passover alone, 250,000 lambs were slaughtered, and they were slaughtered in this two-hour period. And he says the impact of, of, this, of this slaughtering was... was of such magnitude that it caused a river of blood and water to flow out of the back of the temple down into the Kidron Valley, forming a blood river that uh, flowed all the way to Bethlehem. That's a lot of blood. And then as you move along in the Exodus story from where we were were last week, uh, once God liberates his people from slavery... He then instructs them of all these sacrifices. And if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just read Leviticus this week. Um, that's what the whole book of Leviticus is about. It, it's about the sacrifices that God's people are to offer. Because Leviticus teaches God's people how they are to approach God, how they are to draw near to God. Because God, as we've been learning, is is so many things, but God, first and foremost, is holy, holy, holy. In Psalm 24, David gets it right. He asks the question, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may enter God's house? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. We can't approach God. We can't get near God. We can't be in relationship with God without blood. Without blood being shed. And I want us to know right now, because I think sometimes we are so removed from the world of the Old Testament. 
But God has that there for a reason. I mean, just think about all the characters that we probably know about and that we admire, whether it's Moses or Joshua, Ruth, Boaz, David, Hezekiah, all God's people. Or going to the New Testament, Mary, Joseph, Peter, James, John, Jesus. When they came to worship God, the way we have come to worship God this morning, they came with a lamb. And you ask, well, well, why does it have to be this way? Why all that bloodshed? Why a lamb? Well, for starters, we're doing a blood drive. <laughs> I don't like blood. I stay a long way from that room. Um, I can't even give a little vial of blood without blacking out. I don't know what it is uh, with me. I did rise to the occasion when my wife had three C-sections, so I can be a gamer. Uh, But otherwise, um, I'm, I'm pretty pathetic when it comes to blood. But what blood tells us is that something is seriously broken. Blood is something that, that stains. Lady Macbeth, uh, her... Her hands are stained with blood because she killed someone and she looks at those hands and she says, out damn spots. She can't wash the stains out because blood reminds us of the true nature of evil. It stains. It goes deep. Blood tells us we're not fit for God. Blood tells us we're not fit for his presence. Blood tells us we're not fit for relationship with God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And that is something that we are not. In fact, this is is our biggest problem. This this is God's biggest challenge. Uh, Here we are, creatures made in the image of God. We, we, We literally have been made for God, but we're not fit for God. And that's why this this image of the burning bush, when Moses encounters God and God is in that bush as a consuming fire, but the bush isn't being consumed, that's, that's, that's speaking a promise to where the narrative is going, where the story is going. God is this consuming fire and he's going to dwell with his people without consuming them. So once Israel leaves Egypt. God meets them and pitches his tent amongst their tents. He literally makes his dwelling among them. His presence is with them. And guess what? Israel isn't consumed. In fact, when we read this, we should be asking, why are they not consumed? Exodus 29, verses 38 and on, give us the answer. This is God's instruction. This is right before the tabernacle is finished, right before God is about to enter it. He says, this is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs, each a year old. 
Offer one in the morning and the other at twilight or in the evening. And then he says, with the first lamb, with a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with a quarter of hin of oil and pressed olives and a quarter of hin of wine as a drink offering, sacrifice the other lamb in the evening uh, also with the same grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning, this pleasing aroma of food offering that will be presented to the Lord. And then God says for the generations to come, this burnt off- offering, this holocaust is to be made regularly at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. And there I will meet with you. And so God instructs every morning... Every afternoon, a priest is to take a lamb and slaughter it for the entire nation. And then all other sacrifices that would happen in that place would be between these two sacrifices. The first lamb sacrifice opened the day, the second lamb closed the day, and these lambs were sacrificed every day of the year, rain or shine, peace or war, holiday, non-holiday. And what they call this sacrifice is called the, the tamid. Because this is what tamid means. Tamid means continual, daily, perpetual, always, and forever. And that isn't just because every day a priest is continually, perpetually performing this, but it refers more to the continual, perpetual, always, forever covering that this sacrifice provided the nation of Israel. So I want us to think about Because this is our God, and this is the book he has given to us, and this story is our story. For an entire millennia, like clockwork, this sacrifice happens every day in the morning and afternoon, and all the other sacrifices that occur in the tabernacle or the temple occur within these two bookends. Now, you can also imagine how over time they started to add some specificity to this. Morning became 9 a.m., afternoon became 3 p.m. And you can also imagine how this evolved into a liturgical spectacle where every morning at at 9 a.m., this whole group of priests with shofars would stand at the highest point in the temple, joined with choirs. And they would just blast that desert sound uh, just so it would go as far as it could go, much like if you've been in in the um, world of Islam uh, today, like the call to prayer, if you've ever heard the call to prayer. Uh, and, and, And so this would would happen at 9 a.m. in the morning, that that shofar blast from from the highest point in the temple, and then also at 3 p.m., and and every time the people heard this, they knew that that lamb was being sacrificed for the nation in the temple on their behalf. Now think about the Passover lamb. 
That was one lamb for each family. This is one lamb for the entire nation. And see, this is why God's people always knew that their God, who is like that burning bush, this all-consuming fire, how he was perpetually and continuously among them, yet didn't consume them because they were forever covered in the blood of these two lambs. And this is why Tamid happened every single day, year after year, generation after generation, millions of lambs slaughtered. And again, you could be asking, like, why did it have to be this way? Like, God, couldn't you come up with another way for you to be in relationship with us? Couldn't there be another way where, where, where you could make us acceptable to you? And I'll give you the New Testament simple commentary on that question. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, does commentary on that. He says, all forgiveness is suffering. And if, if you don't know that, then you've never forgiven someone. Because to forgive someone is, is, is incredibly costly. I mean, the husband who walks out on his wife or the dad who walks out on his family or the person who's injured you or slandered your reputation or who wronged you or the person who used you or maybe even abused you. See, here's what happens. Anytime that we are wrong, anytime that we are injured by someone else, a debt is incurred and someone has to pay for that. We feel that deep inside ourselves. And this is why the Bible talks about forgiveness in terms of debts. Because every time we sin, someone or something in God's good creation is hurt. And someone has to pay for that hurt. And what we can do then is, is we can make the one who has done the injury to us, we can make them pay, and that's called payback or paying evil for evil. But the problem when we play this game is that this poison enters our soul, the poison of resentment, anger, bitterness. And that poison will poison us, making us poisonous. But the healing way to deal with hurt is through forgiveness. And to forgive someone simply means this, instead of making that other person pay for the hurt that they caused you, you decide yourself to absorb the debt within yourself, to absorb the damage, the hurt, the pain, the wrong. You're the one who pays. And this is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer says all forgiveness is suffering. Now think about a holy God who loves us, who wants to be in relationship with us. But we are a sinful humanity. And failure is going to happen from our end on a massive scale, and someone has to pay for that. 
And here's where I want to take you back to Genesis 15, because I think Genesis 15 is one of the most important passages in the Bible. God, who is already in this special relationship with Abraham, comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, you know this special relationship that I have established with you, and you know the promises that I have made to you, promises to bless you, uh, which means to restore you and to redeem you and to resurrect you. And not just you, Abraham, but through you, all the families on the earth will be blessed. They're going to be restored, resurrected, and redeemed. God says to Abraham, you know what? I want to seal that in blood. And so on this day, God initiates a covenant ceremony that was common in Abraham's day uh, where you would get either an animal or animals and you'd hack that animal or animals into two pieces from head to toe and they'd be placed on the ground in such a way where the blood would form in the middle, forming a blood path. And then each party would walk barefoot through that warm, sticky blood. And in so doing, you were saying to the other person what we sometimes say at our marriage ceremonies, with all that I am and all that I have, I give myself to you. And you're also saying that if I can't remain absolutely wholehearted to you, May my blood be spilt like these animals. What they were doing is they were staking their entire life on this promise. And God came down that day, wrapped in fire. And he passed through that sticky blood. And think about everything that God is saying to Abraham. He doesn't have to speak with his mouth because the act itself speaks. He's saying to Abraham, Abraham, I love you. In fact, I love you so much that I'm going to get my feet and your stickiness and your messed upness. My feet will walk into your your hospital rooms and your cancers and your funerals and your plagues and your earthquakes. Do you see how much I love you, Abraham? Do you see how my heart is bound to you? Do you see how I am staking my entire life? On, I'm putting it all on the line for you, Abraham. I will never, ever forsake you. And that alone would be massive. But there's more because when God made this promise, he he actually did the unimaginable because in this ancient ceremony, both parties were required to pass through the blood. But when it's Abraham's turn to get up and to put his feet in the blood... It's almost as if God says, Abraham, just sit down. And instead, a second time, God passes through the blood. And what he's saying to Abraham, Abraham, you can't do this. I know what you're made of. You know what you're made of. You're going to fail over and over again. God's saying to Abraham, I want all that failure to be on me. I will pay for it in my blood. 
And the text says immediately after this that this promise, Abraham, is for you and your children and your children's children, which is why God's people throughout time, whenever they heard that shofar blast or whenever they watched a lamb sacrificed, it always reminded them of how God passed through the blood, how God's heart will continuously, perpetually, always forever be bound to Abraham and Abraham's children and Abraham's children's children. And so they prayed. When they heard that shofar, God, keep the promise you made to Abraham. And now I want to fast forward 2,000 years from that story of God passing through the pieces. Because 2,000 years later, God in human flesh will be hanging on a Roman cross with blood dripping down in the very soil where he passed through the blood 2,000 years before. And tell me that God did not keep that promise to Abraham. In fact, I want to show you something. This is a reconstruction of the northern part of Israel at the time of Jesus. And you see that big square structure there uh, in the middle uh, inside what are city walls. And that is the temple complex. And if you keep looking, you'll see a white building uh, inside of that square. Uh, That is the temple proper uh, called the Holy of Holies or God's living room. And all the sacrifices happened right in front of that white building, which is also the place where Abraham laid his son on the wood. And then I also want you to imagine as you're looking at that, uh, these priests every day going up to the highest parts of that temple structure uh, with their shofars. And at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., the times of the morning and afternoon sacrifice, the sacrifice for the whole nation, them standing up there and just blaring that desert sound into the city. And then I want you to look below, and there's a small little mound. Uh, If you look closely, it's called Golgotha, and you'll see three crosses there. And that, too, is right on Mount Moriah, or Mount Moriah, where Abraham brought his son up. Isaac. And here's one of the details that Mark's gospel gives us. That Jesus is crucified right at 9 a.m. Think about that. As the nails go into his feet and hands and as that cross is raised up, the shofar is being blasted from the temple to signify the morning sacrifice. And then later in the day, at 3 p.m., right at the time of the evening sacrifice, Mark's gospel lets us know that is the time when God's lamb cries out in a loud voice, it's finished. Because Jesus is not only the lamb that God promised Abraham who would spare the one, Isaac, He's not even just the Passover lamb, the one lamb for each family through whom we have redemption. 
But the Gospels want us to know that he is also the Tamid, the one lamb for the people. And not just a people, but John the Baptist blows this up even further when he says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. Jesus is God's lamb for the entire world. And you say, well, what does this have to do with Christmas? Just think about a lamb. I mean, this creature is, is, is all over the biblical story as this picture of innocence in a world that has come of age, that knows good and evil. And then you read the story, and throughout the story, the evil of individuals and families and a nation, it always falls on this creature. And every time it falls on this creature, through this, the individual or the families, the nation, they're spared, they're healed, they're saved, they're redeemed, they're set free, they're forgiven, they're made acceptable to God. Listen to Blake's poem, The Lamb. Little lamb, little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, for he himself a lamb. He is meek, he is mild, and he became a little child. And the baby that we celebrate at Christmas was born a lamb. The lamb of all lambs, the lamb to end all lambs, the sacrifice to end all sacrifice. I mean, to see this through William Blake, Jesus is the epitome of the song of innocence who came to this world that has come of age, that knows good and evil. And he became the song of experience. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. He became our sin so that we could become his righteousness and be restored to his innocence. In fact, the end of Revelation describes a day, a day that Jamie so wonderfully talked about already this morning. It's a day that we all long for. In fact, creation itself, Romans 8 says, right now it's groaning for this day because it's going to be a day when this broken world returns to Eden, when new creation swallows up all death and decay. I mean, just imagine that. A day that is going to launch the age to come. No more tears, no more sadness, no more pain. In fact, everything sad that has happened in this age somehow will become untrue on that day and in the age to come because of Jesus. And that's why the Bible describes this day as a wedding because on this day, all of those who have hoped in Christ, who've placed their life in Christ, they're going to be presented to Christ, and they're going to be presented to Christ as a bride, prepared as a bride, glorious, beautiful. And I look at my life and I say, are you kidding? Really? I mean, how is it that we're going to be 
prepared as this beautiful, glorious bride. It's because of the one. The one who's preparing us for that day. He's going to make us beautiful. He's going to make us radiant and blemish, without stain or blemish. And that's why throughout the book of Revelation, Christ is called the Lamb. He's not called Christ the King. He's not called Christ the Lord. He's most often called throughout this book simply the Lamb. And why Lamb? Because Lamb reminds us of why we're beautiful. We have been washed. We have been made glorious by the blood of a Lamb. And that's why John says, Behold, behold the Lamb of God. Because that's all we need to do is look at him. Look at him. The prophet simply said, look and you will live. Philip, when he found him, said to his friend, he said, we found him. Come and see. The Christmas song says it too. Come and behold him. And I say, don't stop looking, beholding him until you see him. And God, in seeing you, we see the continuous, perpetual, forever love of God that is in Jesus Christ. And God, we see what you're doing in us. We see what you're doing in your world. New creation. God, would you open the eyes of our heart? Because we see so many things and things that we gravitate to that we think are going to bring life. But God, would you open the eyes of our heart to see what our hearts have been made to see? And that's you. I pray this all in the Lamb's name. Amen.